Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today we will be discussing the tragic torpedoing and sinking of RMS Lusitania. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before we begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be talking about World War I and imperialist Germany, which may be upsetting to some listeners. Please also note that there is a vast amount of information surrounding the specifics of Lusitania and her sinking, some of which is contradictory. I have taken the information most commonly accepted and am presenting that. Before we get started, we will go over the basics of nautical terminology. The bow is the very front part of the ship and the very back end of it is called the stern. The port side is the left and the starboard side is the right. Propellers are sometimes referred to as screws. The hull is the metal sides of the ship and the keel is the very bottom of it and the superstructure is the top deck, usually made of wood. Smokestacks or funnels are large tunnels on top of the ship used to direct steam and smoke away from the deck. Masts are large wooden poles on the deck of the ship, usually used to hoist sails or hold a crow's nest where crew members can see for miles around the vessel. Beam is a measurement that refers to the width of the ship. With that out of the way, today we find ourselves in Clydebank, Scotland at the John Brown & Company shipyard in 1904. The keel laid in yard number 367 would become Cunard Line's massive, speedy ocean liner RMS Lusitania. RMS Lusitania was part of a three-ship class, with her middle sister being RMS Mauritania and her younger sister being RMS Aquitania. Because of the success of White Star Line's Big Four liners being so large and bougie, Cunard felt the need to build larger, faster liners in order to compete. Cunard was also in stiff competition with the Hamburg American Line and the German Norddeutscher Lloyd Line, known also as the German Lloyd Line. The Kaiser class from the German Lloyd Line was stacked with fast ocean liners that were consistently taking the blue ribbon from Cunard and the Hamburg American Line, resulting in fewer passengers wanting to take Cunard or even White Star. The Big Four launched by White Star Line began to regain their loyal customers, and Lusitania was designed to regain Cunard's domination on the Atlantic. At the same time, J.P. Morgan had formed his International Mercantile Marine Company and was acquiring more and more shipping companies, including White Star Line, which worried the British government. You might be asking, why is that? Great question. This is because during times of war, the Royal Navy requisitioned British-owned ships for wartime service. If IMM, an American-owned company, owned all of the British shipping companies, then that leaves fewer ocean liners for requisitioning. And it's a good thing they made Cunard an offer they couldn't refuse in June of 1903. As long as the ships were able to be requisitioned and were built in a way that they could easily be transformed into armed merchant cruisers, then the British government would provide a handsome subsidy, including a 2.6 million pound loan, which is roughly 351 million pounds today. This loan would be repayable over 20 years and have a surprisingly low interest rate of 2.75%, making this a lucrative deal for Cunard. The annual subsidy they would receive would be £75,000 plus a mail contract of £68,000. The only thing that was asked in return is the beautiful ocean liners made with this money met Admiralty specifications in size, speed, and maneuverability. 
And what were these specifications? Well, firstly, that the coal bunkers must line the sides of the ship to act like a protective barrier. As secondly, the most important specification for the Royal Navy was primarily speed. The ships needed to be able to travel at the very least 16 knots, according to JSTOR. That was difficult to do with the design of steam engines in 1904, but Cunard was certainly up to the challenge. They were going to switch to a turbine engine, which was a colossal feat at the time. To test the design of these steam-powered turbine engines in 1894, they created a smaller ship named Turbinia. Turbinia used a three-stage axial flow direct-acting steam turbine engine by the Parsons Marine Company. This engine was so efficient that it was able to propel the small ship at a whopping 34 and a half knots. When this technology was applied to Lusitania, it provided similarly promising results. When RMS Lusitania was laid down on August 17, 1904, the ship was the largest passenger ocean liner ever at 787 feet long, 144 feet tall from the keel to the top of the funnels, and a beam of 87 feet wide. She weighed in at a whopping 31,550 gross registered tons with nine passenger decks and four triple-bladed propellers that were powered by four direct-acting Parsons steam turbines. The propellers would be later upgraded for quadruple-bladed screws in 1909. These turbines were fed by 25 fire tube boilers and were capable of producing 76,000 horsepower. She was also the first British four-funneled ocean liner, making this look the standard for large British ocean liners going forward. She was painted with a red keel, black hull, and white superstructure completed with red funnels that were painted black at the very tops. The hull was divided into 12 watertight compartments complete with 35 hydraulically operated doors, any two of which could be flooded and the ship could safely remain afloat. Along with this, Lusitania was equipped with 16 lifeboats providing seats for approximately 1,000 passengers. This, of course, was nowhere near her capacity of 2,198 passengers and 850 crew. Her fastest westbound crossing was 25.85 knots after her propellers were changed in 1909, but she averaged around 23.99 knots westbound and 23.61 knots eastbound. There is a lot of details about Lusitania's interior design in comparison to her sister Mauritania, but the major thing is that she was large and spacious with light wood trim and paneling throughout, making Lusitania seem more open and brighter inside. Both ships were immaculately designed and decorated, completed with beautiful gold finishings in her first-class dining room, plasterwork details throughout, and comfortable stylish furnishings in each room. There was even a lovely veranda cafe similar to the one seen later on Titanic, and spacious suites. A grand staircase linked all six of the passenger decks with two lifts and wide halls on each deck leading from the staircase. Even third-class accommodations aboard Lusitania were lex for her time being much more open and spacious with a saloon-style dining hall and separate third-class smoking room, which wasn't standard for ships at the time. What was most appealing to the immigrant class about Lusitania was the fact that she didn't have dormitories for them to sleep in, but instead two, four, six, and eight berth cabins so families could travel together more privately if desired. Her sister ship, RMS Mauritania's contract, would go to Swan Hunter and she would be built in England. So Lusitania was nicknamed the Scottish ship for her Scottish roots and launched on June 7th, 1906, eight weeks behind the schedule due to a labor strike. 
RMS Lusitania was only the largest passenger ship on the seas for a few months of her service, with RMS Mauritania designed to be a little longer, wider, and heavier with an extra power stage fitted to her turbines. During sea trials in July of 1906, Lusitania reached a top service speed of 26.5 knots, much faster than was required or anticipated of her. Although this was impressive, due to the lean and mean design of the ship, she suffered from terrible vibrations at any speed, but especially when traveling at her maximum speed. In order to displace some of the vibrations, she was fitted with extra pillars and arches to stabilize the ship. Although this took away from the open and airy design she was originally going for, it added some stoicism, class, and almost Roman-like elegance with all of the columns and pillars. This didn't entirely eliminate the vibration problem, but did mitigate it enough for Cunard to be able to be satisfied with their large, beautiful ship when she was delivered to them on August 26, 1906. RMS Lusitania would continue to undergo maintenance for her vibrations throughout her career. On Saturday, September 7, 1907, RMS Lusitania was moored at the Liverpool landing stage, commanded by Commodore James Watt. She was readying to leave at 4.30 p.m. for her maiden voyage, where she would continue on to Queenstown, Ireland, to pick up Im Irish immigrant passengers. Until November of that year, when Mauritania would launch, Lusitania would be the largest passenger ship afloat, and she basked in the glory as 200,000 people gathered in Queenstown to watch the ship disembark with her Irish passengers at 9 p.m. Later in the morning at 9.20 a.m., joined by Cunard's RMS Lucania, she anchored off Rocks Point near Queenstown, where the last of her passengers were ferried out by tenderboat, bringing her total number of passengers on this maiden voyage to 2,320. By 12.10 p.m. that Sunday afternoon, Lusitania was passing the Daunt Rock lightship, reaching her top service speed and making record time as she sailed across the Atlantic. She arrived at Sandy Hook, New Jersey at 9.05 a.m. on September 13, 1907, having only taken five days and 54 minutes to make her transatlantic journey, just 30 minutes shy of beating the speed record set by Lloyd Line's Kaiser Wilhelm II. Her return journey was also quick, only taking five days, four hours, and 19 minutes to return to Liverpool. She would hold the blue ribbon multiple times during her career, passing it back and forth between herself and her sister, RMS Mauritania. Contrary to some, Historical record shows she took the Blue Ribbon first on October 11, 1907 after crossing from Liverpool to Sandy Hook in 4 days, 19 hours, and 53 minutes. In December of 1907, when Mauritania entered the service, she took the Blue Ribbon from her sister for the fastest eastbound crossing. Then Lusitania would reclaim the Blue Ribbon one last time for Mauritania in 1909 before Mauritania would reclaim the prize and hold on to it all the way until 1929 when it was taken away from her by SS Bremen. During her eight years of service, Lusitania made a total of 201 transatlantic crossings. In those crossings, she carried 155,795 passengers westbound and 106,180 eastbound. She gained a glowing reputation as speedy and efficient as well as luxurious, with her tickets being sold out frequently and highly sought after. Lucy, as she was nicknamed by her passengers, was a smash hit for Cunard alongside Maury, the nickname given to Mauritania. At the end of September through the beginning of October in 1909, many ships took part in the Hudson Fulton celebration in New York City, and this included Lusitania. 
It was a celebration of the 300th anniversary of Henry Hudson's discovery of the Hudson River that runs through New York City, as well as a display of the modernization and transportation. Lusitania was actually filmed during this time, which is one of the first motion pictures captured in history. At the same time, Wilbur Wright brought one of the first aeroplanes and it actually flew over the deck of Lusitania a couple times, which can be seen in photographs from the celebration. Lusitania was there for a lot of innovation, including the introduction of larger ocean liners a couple years later. Even after the introduction of White Star Line's Olympic class in 1911, starting with RMS Olympic, the two Cunarders remained popular. And dear listener, you might be asking yourself, what happened to Aquitania? Similar to the Olympic classes Britannic, there was a delay in the building of Aquitania, and she was immediately requisitioned for wartime service, just like her contemporary Britannic. So, for the time being, it was just the two sisters. With the onset of World War I, however, came the threat of German submarines known as U-boats that patrolled the Atlantic Ocean and would often destroy passenger liners as well as warships that came into their path. Destroying passenger ships and hospital ships was, and still is, against maritime law, but the German U-boats did it anyways. The Declaration of Paris is the wartime law regarding naval engagements that I am referring to. In it, there are so-called cruiser rules that state that passengers and crew of civilian vessels need to be safeguarded in the event that the ship is confiscated or scuttled. This also stated that these merchant vessels remain transparent, flying their own flag and not try to disguise which country they are from, and that they be open to boarding and searches without being hostile. The ship also couldn't be carrying any munitions or armed forces, which would prove to be a problem for Lusitania, who had been built to the specifications of the Royal Navy, complete with a secret ammunition cargo hold. Despite British merchant vessels being given the green light to ram submarines to enforce the cruiser rules upon Germany's U-boats after the declaration of war, ocean liners were not built to be efficient warships, as would later be discovered. They could not maneuver fast enough with their long frames, and in most cases would be the loser against a U-boat. With the onset of the war, many ships that were built, being built were paused to protect their assets from being destroyed, to be transformed into armed merchant cruisers or hospital ships, and due to a lack of clientele for transatlantic journeys. No one wanted to take the risk aboard a British ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Lusitania, among many other ships, was painted in a gray color scheme after the direct declaration of war to disguise her identity and nationality, despite the fact that she remained in civilian service. Her sister Mauritania would join White Star Line's RMS Olympic as a troop carrier and armed merchant cruiser later on. With warnings from the German government splashed all over newspapers warning people to board British passenger liners at their own risk, including with RMS Lusitania listed specifically in some of these ads, her passenger lists hit record lows in 1915. Oddly enough, despite other liners having already been sunk and the war still raging, Cunard thought the danger posed against Lusitania was subsiding, and they repainted her in her Cunard colors, but leaving the smokestacks completely black. A rumor that was later confirmed upon finding and diving her wreckage was that ammunition was also stored in a secret compartment of Lusitania for transport, and this would make it legal in times of war to sink her. Despite these foreboding messages and the secret cargo that would certainly make her an enemy target, as they suspected Lusitania to be carrying this ammunition, she would depart New York City for Liverpool for the last time on May 1st, 1915 at 12.20pm Eastern Standard Time. We have reached the sinking of RMS Lusitania. Just a reminder for our listeners, there's a vast amount of information surrounding the specifics of Lusitania and her sinking, some of which is contradictory. 
We have taken the information most commonly accepted and are presenting that. Please note this story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel, wartime violence, imperialist Germany, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. RMS Lusitania departed Pier 54 in New York City for an eastbound crossing to Liverpool on May 1, 1915 at 12.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, carrying 1,265 passengers and 624 crew, the majority of those passengers being British nationals and Canadians, with 139 of those passengers being American. This is important to note now, since the number of Americans passing during the sinking angered the American public and made them more open to going to war. Of these passengers booked, 290 were in first class, 601 were in the vastly overbooked second class, and 373 were traveling in the third class. The overbooked second class passengers were moved into empty first class cabins, which I'm sure they didn't mind. The Commodore for the Cunard Line, Captain William Thomas Turner, had returned to Captain the Lusitania once more on this voyage to relieve Captain Daniel Dow, the regular captain, due to the stresses of navigating U-boat infested waters. Captain Turner, nicknamed Bowler Bill for his choice in headwear, was an experienced mariner and assured his nervous passengers that Lusitania's incredible speed made her safe from submarines. However, we should note here that in order to save money on coal during wartime hardships, Cunard had shut down one of the four boiler rooms aboard Lusitania, reducing her top speed to around 22 knots. Lusitania steamed out of New York City two hours behind schedule, but with her reliability and incredible speed, there was confidence in her ability to make that time back. She made decent time, steaming around 750 nautical miles west of Southern Ireland on the morning of May 6th, only five days after having left America. At this point, there had been no signs of U-boats, and Lusitania was steaming ahead as she would normally. By 5 a.m. on May 7th, she reached the point 120 nautical miles west-southwest of Fastnet Rock, where she would meet the patrolling boarding vessel, Partridge. A boarding vessel, or armed boarding steamer, was a steamship that was converted into a warship meant to enforce wartime blockades by intercepting and boarding foreign vessels for inspection. By 6 a.m., a heavy fog rolled off the coast of Ireland over the Atlantic, blanketing the sea and making navigation at top speed foolhardy. Captain Turner first had the speed reduced to 18 knots as they began to near the coast of Ireland around 8 a.m., further reducing the speed to 15 knots and ordering the foghorn to be sounded. The use of the foghorn unnerved some of the passengers who felt that Lusitania was announcing her presence to potential U-boats in the area. By 10 a.m., the fog started to lift and the sun shone brightly in the sky once more by noon, and Captain Turner increased speed back to 18 knots. Meanwhile, at 12.45 p.m., the U-boat U-20 surfaced as the visibility was ideal for sighting enemy ships, and by 1.20 p.m., Lusitania was sighted off the horizon. At first, she was thought to be multiple smaller ships because of the amount of funnels. By 1.25 p.m., U-20 dropped to a depth of 11 meters as they realized the large bounty they had in Lusitania. At her maximum submerged speed of 9 knots, she headed toward the ocean liner like a hungry shark hunting a whale. By 2.10 p.m., the stars had unfortunately aligned, and U-20 was not only two nautical miles away from Lusitania, the perfect firing distance, but the unknowing ocean liner had turned toward the U-boat, exposing her starboard side to an attack. At 2.10 p.m., the first and only confirmed torpedo was launched, striking Lusitania on her starboard side just behind the bridge. There is a rumored but not confirmed second torpedo said to have hit the starboard side near the engine room, causing a massive explosion. 
though this explosion was more than likely caused by cold water hitting the hot boilers and spontaneously combusting. After this torpedo hit Lusitania, she immediately listed dramatically to the starboard side around 15 degrees. Due to this stark list and the rapid flooding worsening the list, launching the lifeboats became complicated and dangerous. Little did the passengers of Lusitania know it, but they only had around 18 minutes to get off the ship alive. Only a couple minutes after the ship was struck, the power went out, leaving the ship adrift and the inside of the ship dark. Just before the power went out at 2.14 p.m., Captain Turner was able to relay his position of 10 nautical miles south of the old head of Kinsale and an SOS message out to the shore and nearby ships. After the power went out, many passengers and crew were trapped due to the inability to open already closed bulkhead doors where men were trapped, and electric lifts throughout the ship were inoperable. Passengers panicked in dark hallways, scrambling to get to the top deck. Little did they know it was still too dangerous to launch lifeboats when they got there as Lusitania was still moving too quickly. Ten minutes into the sinking, Lusitania had finally slowed enough to safely launch boats. Of all the lifeboats that would be launched, only six from the starboard side would do so safely and without tipping. Most of the other lifeboats launched overturned as they scraped against the side of the ship, sending passengers into the sea. She had 48 lifeboats total, enough for the passengers and crew on board, but tragically only the aforementioned six would make it into the Atlantic. These lifeboats were at first not filled to capacity. Lifeboat 9 had 5 on board, lifeboat 11 had 7 people, and lifeboat 1 tipped upon being lowered but managed to be righted and saved survivors from the water. Lifeboats 13 and 15 were overloaded with 150 passengers between the two of them, and lifeboat 21 was the last to be launched with 52 people loaded into it. Some of these lesser-filled boats were able to save people from the water, so it wasn't entirely wasted space. Two boats were successfully launched on the port side, with lifeboat 14 reaching the water without its plug being properly placed and therefore sinking almost immediately. Lifeboat 2 floated away safely just before the ship foundered. On deck of the Lusitania, there was widespread panic and devastation. Many of the victims of the sinking never even made it to the decks, having died within the belly of the darkened ship, unable to find the stairwells to escape. As Lusitania sank, she turned sharply to the starboard side and sank by the bow after only 18 minutes. It took hours for help to arrive even though they were close to the coast, and by that time many had succumbed to the freezing cold Atlantic Ocean, with the water temperature being 52 degrees Fahrenheit. After the survivors had been counted, 764 passengers and crew were successfully rescued and brought back to Queenstown, Ireland. The final death toll has been listed as 1,195 of the 1,959 people on board, 128 of them being American. Only 289 bodies were able to be recovered, of those 65 were never identified. The other 885 victims were lost to the sea some probably still resting at the bottom of the ocean with Lusitania's wreckage. After the sinking, there was significant outrage among the British and American public. They just couldn't believe a beautiful ocean liner such as Lusitania could be targeted and sunk by the Germans. War propaganda from shortly after the sinking would be splattered with sayings like, remember the Lusitania and take up the sword of justice. This was the second to last straw for the United States, with them eventually declaring that if another ship sank, it would be taken as, quote, deliberately unfriendly. Of course, more ships sank, and the United States would enter World War I on April 6, 1917. Many would remember the Lusitania with a foul taste in their mouth, and it would be an unspoken underlying distaste that permeated the Great War. The shipwreck of the Lusitania was found in 1935 at a depth of around 305 feet. 
It is rumored that in World War II, a radar aboard another vessel mistook the Lusitania for a submarine, and she was subsequently bombed by the Allies, leaving her smashed into the ocean floor, although this isn't confirmed. The main explanation for why the wreckage is in such poor shape is due to the tides of the Celtic Sea mixed with natural corrosion of her iron hull. There were many unsuccessful salvage operations launched, and none came to fruition. Artifacts have been pulled from the vessel, but she will never be refloated or completely scrapped from the ocean floor, leaving her for other generations to learn from. Many technical divers have attempted to dive Lusitania and have been seriously injured due to the site being littered with depth charges and hedgehog mines, covered in fishing nets, stocked with dangerous World War I and munitions, and the sediment that is stirred up by the current severely limiting visibility. With that being said, dear listeners, please do not dive Lusitania's wreck site. It is incredibly dangerous and not worth the risk. This episode hopes to commemorate the many lives lost during the sinking of Lusitania, as well as during other U-boat attacks in World War I. Of all the ships sunk due to U-boats, Lusitania is the most well-known and serves as a testament to the brutality of war. For more information about Lusitania, there is a great novel written by Eric Larson called Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. Tune in next Sunday for the story of the cargo ferry MS Herald of Free Enterprise, which capsized in only 90 seconds. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.